Welcome to the latest episode from the LDA Podcast. I'm Matt Richter, and today, Clark Quinn and I are joined by our friend Carl Kopp. Carl is a professor of instructional technology and the director of the Institute for Interactive Technologies at Bloomsburg University. He's also the founder of the Learning and Development Mentor Academy, where he offers tons of self-paced workshops and live sessions for seasoned L&D professionals. He also co-founded Enterprise GameStack, a company that designs, develops, and delivers online digital card activities and games that keep participants focused, engaged, and collaborative, while reinforcing learning both in the moment and over time. And without further ado, here we go. So I'm just really excited. Uh, Carl Kopp is in the house. Carl, welcome to the LDA podcast. Hey, thanks, Matthew. Great to be here. Great to be here with Clark. Hi, and uh, haven't seen you guys in a while, so I'm excited to um, talk to you. I know, I know, and and I've now converted my face to a face for radio, so uh, <laughs> so it's a good thing that we're not uh, showing video of this. Yes. Um, but as mentioned, we're going to dive into two topics that seem forefront in mind, and um our, our areas of expertise and interest uh, of yours uh so uh why don't we dive into the ai topic is ai cheating and uh what let's do a quick snapshot what do you think is it cheating i say no how so how is it not cheating so i, I think it's very interesting so at first if you would have asked me when it first came out about a year ago i would have said yes AI to design instruction um, is cheating, AI to help with um, outlines is cheating, that kind of stuff. Two things have kind of changed my mind. One is it's not as good as it's purported to be. So that um, if you actually use AI to do something serious and you don't modify it, you don't change it, you don't add your own spin to it, um, it's going to be horrible. It's a horrible reflection on you. And there's been a lot of, um, in the press, you know, there was a lawyer who cited sources, um, that didn't exist using AI. There was actually, um, a friend of mine, um, got a job consulting because the previous consultant had used AI to generate the analysis report. And it was, uh, fault, there were false information in there and it was so generic. The client's like, this can't possibly be real. But having said that, uh, when I am sitting down to think about uh, some content that I need to put together, um, we have all faced the blank white page on the computer screen. And um, sometimes that's daunting. And so just getting an idea from AI helps. And then also clarification, you know, when I'm writing a book, I often go to uh, Wikipedia or I go find an article or I go to a research article because I want additional or information or even sometimes a different perspective. And I think AI can do that. We can get a different perspective or a different idea and spark kind of what we want to do. Um, it's not, um, it's definitely not a finished product 
and those who use it as a finished product, I think are going to get in trouble. But I, I look at it like Grammarly or like spell checker, you know, it's enhancing what I'm able to do. I mean, I am a horrible speller. Yeah. But Carl, Carl, you're doing, you're, 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 you're putting very strong constraints around its usage. Uh, and a lot of people are using it in the ways you just described one should not. And, uh, and, uh, but more importantly, what about your intellectual property? Uh, I mean, when people ask about gamification and it spouts out a whole bunch of stuff that comes aggregated mostly from you as one of the most published people on gamification and micro learning. Uh, and and, and yeah, it's your so stuff with no does, attribution. It does make it, it does, well, so in, yeah, it, it, in that way, it is, um, it's aggravating. But I mean, I've had people who have come to my workshops and then uh, a year later, they're doing a workshop on the same topic. Well, I've that's had, another topic for us to talk right, about. Right, exactly. So, so, so. <laughs> whether it's digitally uh, stealing my intellectual property or physically stealing my intellectual property, it, uh, unfortunately, I think it's always going to be stolen unless I have an army of uh, lawyers, which I do not have. So my thought on that is always to be one step ahead of what the copycats are doing. Um, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of effort. But it, it, I think, differentiates you, the innovator, from the copycats. Having said that, you know, AI is only as good as all the content that's out there. So has it made me think uh, a little bit about withholding some content or putting content in different formats? I, I definitely think it does. And I think the other interesting thing is, for a while, I think uh, blogging and videos and all that were becoming like the preferred way to share content. But now if it's in a book and the book doesn't get shared on the internet, right? Because you've got it published and put it out there and you're not doing that. That's actually now a, a way to protect some of the IP that only a, a year or two ago wasn't a way to protect the IT. Now certainly you can digitize it and that kind of stuff, but if it's not out there, um, it's not, it's not going to be stolen, but I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm not the only author, you know, Sarah Silverman and other people are struggling with this. I, what I would like to see, and I don't know if this would happen, but I'd love to see the AI companies pay some kind of royalty to the authors, even, you know, fraction of a penny. Um, but I also like to see that for people that use my personal information as well. And I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of a I don't know what do you what do you guys think? It's a little bit of a conundrum. I, Carl, a couple things you've uh, triggered. Uh, I was just thinking, you know, you say your books are protected, but they're not. The Atlantic Monthly had this list, which unfortunately I wasn't a member, so I couldn't check to see if my books. But a whole bunch of people's books have been sucked into these systems. So having it as a book doesn't seem to protect it. And like you. Um, well, unlike you, I get a wee bit ticked off thinking that they're bucket making buckets of money and they're not passing any of it on to the people whose material they've incorporated uh, without any request, access, agreement or anything. 
I agree with you that I don't think AI is cheating because using AI, as you suggested, as a thinking partner is great. And, you know, for you as a professor thinking about students, if they're going to use these tools out in the real world, they should be using them in the learning experience as well. They should be using them appropriately and chastised when they let things go by. These systems don't understand truth. And to be clear, we're talking largely, you know, when you say at the beginning, before this year, you were against it, you were largely talking about AI up to that point. And what's emerged in the past year is this generative AI, which is a different thing in many ways, uh, because it's not discriminating between things, it's generating things. Um, but it's great, it can generate some ideas. And you know, you first generate your list, then you ask what its list, and it might have something that you hadn't thought of. And you know, as soon as you remind you, go, oh, of course, I forgot to include that. But it may have several other things that you go, uh, no, <laughs> that's complete garbage. Uh, I asked it about myself, being the narcissist that I am. It listed three of my good books, three books that I'd actually written, and it had made one that I'd never written. <laughs> um, Is that now on your list, right? Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah now, you wished you had, had, but. but the, 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 one of the things I worry about that. is how are people using it? What, I worry too much that people are so focused on efficiency. And I had literally had a client come to me and say, you know, I want to use AI. I'm pressured to use it to do more, not to do better, to do more. And that's an important distinction. You, what you're saying, you do need people in the loop and learning how to use it appropriately is going to be an important part of the skill set we need going forward. But and then I have one other thought and I'll give Matt a chance as well. And I'd like your your thoughts on this first, Carl, um, because it seems to me it knows it knows things. It doesn't really know them. It can recite things, but it doesn't understand do. It doesn't understand applying. And so it might write knowledge questions for you that test knowledge. But we have little evidence that we actually have evidence to the contrary that asking application questions leads to better ability to apply. I'm not sure it can do that. And have you found in your studies that it can, or is that still a barrier? And you can ask it for help on setting the scenario in the context, but you've got to choose the critical application questions to ask to embed yeah, in this context. In my in my playing with it for questions and distractors, it's done a horrible job. It um, the distractors don't make sense. The quite they're illogical. The questions are. Um, very facts based and fact response not application some of the ones that i got it finally to do application it's not the right application so um i, I think it's you know if, if we think about how they put everything together the, the the thing that i think is interesting is that as they put this together and and you know somebody i read somewhere it said um this is as bad as ai is ever going to get so um that means it's going to get better at, at that and it, it's going to probably have parameters to write decent questions perhaps but but i, I always I, I the one thing that does kind of interest me or that i think is a little bit disturbing or i don't know what this is but so i saw this training where it was mimicking uh, uh a client and you're a customer service rep and you can talk to it and it actually is hooked up to 3d so that it's for um, tele telecom, you can look at the person's router and it walks you through interacting with the customer. If you say the stupid thing, the customer hangs up the phone. And I thought for myself for a minute, like, 
okay, that's really interesting training. That's exciting. Then I thought myself for a minute, so why do I need the customer service rep? Why can't you just call AI and answer the question? So then that got me thinking about, well, you know, we talk about um, AI perhaps eliminating some training and development jobs, but it's also going to eliminate like, like a lot of jobs of our customers and our clients. And so I have um, concern or thoughts on what's that going to do to like, you know, any customer service rep training eventually, I don't know what's going to happen to that because I don't know what happened to customer service reps, paralegal training. I don't know what's going to happen to paralegals. I mean, it always happens more slowly than um, the hype, but it always kind of eventually like the ocean on a rock. Um, and I, those kind of questions interest me in terms of what I think is going to happen with AI. I don't, I don't know. It's, I don't know. Part of me says it's, way overhyped and uh it cannot do half the things that people claim it can do and part of me goes well that's what they thought about the internet so i i don't know well i think there's a i think we're a long way from it having the quality of the internet but i think i think in l d we have uh, a large population in our industry that that over uh over appreciates their skill set <laughs> so uh, you know present company accepted your linkedin course i i know is well thought out and brilliant and all that but i've looked at a lot of linkedin learning courses that are not only drivel they're just lectures with a few multiple choice type things added in for good measure there there's not much there but a lot of l d organizations are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to subscribe to LinkedIn Learning and gutting the rest of their learning groups. So if LinkedIn Learning can become a replacement for good design, good pedagogy, and so forth, what's AI going to do? And especially without the level of expertise uh, expected or guiding it. And so that's one of my concerns. Mm -hmm. Um, one mitigation I've, I've tried to do. So, um, with my students, I've been trying to take AI and assign them to take prompts, go to AI, get the answers from the AI, and then specifically chat GBT. Mm -hmm. And then they have to analyze the response, annotate the response and tell me whether it's a good response. And uh, now they could play games and ask the AI to do that, but uh, I, then we go into a tautological exercise. But right. But I'm finding that that's actually a good way to get them thinking and started. To your point, instead of looking at the blank page, to mm -hmm. work off of something and and analyze it. But I'm not sure I'm getting them to where Clark wants them to be uh, in terms of application. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think I I mean they really. I think one of the, one of the, you know, to me, writing is thinking. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to learn to think, you need to write. Um, and if we can have machines write for us, then uh, it's going to devastate thinking. Um, you know, from an educator perspective, that worries me a great bit. Um, 
I, you know, writing, I've seen instances where you're writing in class now because, you know, people are using chat GPT. One, one gentleman told me, I know this was fascinating. He said, you know, our, our fifth grade students, they now have to do essays in class. And I said, why? Well, and they said, well, when chat GPT first came out, the fifth graders were going to chat GPT and going, give me an essay uh, about trucks or whatever. <laughs> and the teacher could tell like, okay, no fifth grader writes like this. This isn't good. You, you covered it. Then the fifth grader said, well, write me an essay like a fifth grader on the topics of trucks. Right. And then it was a little harder, but they're like, you didn't make any mistakes. Fifth graders make mistakes. This isn't right. Then the fifth graders were prompting, write me an essay on trucks, fifth grade level, make three common fifth grade mistakes and two spelling errors. I'm like, well, first of all, hire that kid. But second of all, um, that is what educators are up against in terms of thinking for now how that kid who the, whoever thought through that prompt, that was a critical thinking. But for the rest of the group, who just copy that prompt, that's not critical thinking at all. And how are we going to educate people to think critically if the writing is done for them? And well, and that's the other thing. It takes time, right? Yeah, you, can't, yeah. you can't write in a 40-minute class. Mm -hmm. uh, and classes are right. 40 minutes or, or an hour, right? Yeah, it depends. Yeah, yeah. You know? Usually elementary, even shorter. Yeah, some of them. So, so how do you get them to do that kind of critical thinking in class? They have to do it offline. Yeah. Right. But, but Carl, I don't know about your writing, but I know I have to put an outline first and then I may rearrange it, but I'm getting a story, a flow going that I then flesh out in that time. They could create an outline at least. And then they turn that in, they have a copy of for them and a copy for you. And then, you know, that overnight or however long you're given for the assignment, they come back and you see how what's developed from their outline, but they had to do the initial thinking, not just thinking out loud about this. But one of my issues, you know, we have choices and our choices can be to let AI start doing the creative stuff and us shutting off our brains and not thinking. Or we say, we're going to value the thinking part of it. We're gonna have AI do the stuff we don't wanna do. We use it as a thinking partner, but we retain not just the uh, freedom to be creative, but also the responsibility for what comes out. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I'm not sure, that, not saying this is easy right now, school is focused on output deliverables. Can you deliver this thing? On, you know, I'm sure at your university, less so probably than at many, um, at least your program, where people come in, I want the degree, I'll do whatever mm -hmm. the minimum it takes to get the degree, you gave me a low grade on this, I didn't, you know, give me a good grade, whatever, what I have to do to get a good grade, besides think, um, we've got some societal pressure that we kind of have to shift against as well, it seems to me. It does. And, and I think I think the problem is, uh, I think Matt or, or Matthew or, or you mentioned it earlier, is that with companies wanting efficient, quote unquote, efficiencies. And well, so but but it, that doesn't always work. Like I, I look at um, uh, uh, self-checkout, right? That was supposed to be really efficient, really effective. And now companies are going the opposite direction because people are cheating or they don't know, you know, uh, cauliflower from, uh, you know, um, 
broccoli or that kind of stuff. So um, they're checking out the wrong thing. So I, I think blind adherence to efficiency is going to cause problems. And I think companies that too far embrace AI are going to be uh, are going to be burnt. But um, there, it's going to leave a lot of collateral damage, I think, in in, in its wake until we figure out how to wrestle this thing to the ground if, if, if possible. So it's not cheating, but it's a problem. Right. Yeah. I, I think it is. I think it is a problem. And I think, um, but it's like any tool, you know, I mean, if we step back, it's like any tool, right? So you can use a hammer to drive in a nail or smash a window. Um, AI is the same thing. AI is not a hammer, though. It's a wrecking ball. So you can use it to bring down a so building. A truck through the building. Right. A building you want to bring down <laughs> or a building you don't want to bring down. Yeah. All right. On that note, let's transition into the big lie. So, Carl, without us giving you any context, in the context of learning and development, is it acceptable to lie to your students? I think it's uh, acceptable to take poetic license. So Ooh, um, that, that was a nice way to avoid the question. I think sometimes you have to um, to illustrate a point, to uh, show a case study, to uh, bring something home. I think uh, in that area, it's okay to embellish or change. I mean, I don't think um, I, I I can't see an instance where a student asked me a direct question that I would lie to them or um, information or, or anything like that. I don't, I don't think that's a good policy at all. I, I think back to Clark's point, one of the things that does, even in my program, one of the things that really bothers me is I've seen a definite shift, or maybe it's because I'm old man yelling at people, but uh, old, uh, definitely a, a, an idea of people, like it's all about the grade, right? So I was doing a, a, a one minute presentation, we're doing it online and, so he's like, well, Dr. Cobb, I could just look in the corner of my computer and see the timing. So I would know if it's a one minute presentation. I said, yeah, but the point of this exercise is for you to feel what it's like to have the pressure of getting information delivered in one minute and trying to internally figure out what a minute is. I said, if you want to look at the timer, that's I can't stop you, but you're totally destroying the, the integrity of the exercise. So I think there's. And no employer has ever, I always tell my students this, no employer has ever said, hey, Dr. Cop, was it an A or an A minus that they got in your class? Like the employers don't care. Do they work well with others? Are they efficient? Those kind of questions. So, so we have this class where we do a mock response to an RFP. And a student this semester, the first time it ever happened, she said, what's the point of this exercise? I'm like, well, we're, we're mimicking the process of writing uh, RFP, that's how business is done in this industry. Da, da, da. She goes, well, this isn't real. I'm having a hard time making stuff up. And I said, well, but it's part of the, uh, you know, pretend that you're a company. It's like moot court. We have, you know, business plan competitions where you make up your business. Uh, and she just never wrapped her head around the fact that it was fake. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting. So, look. Uh, I'm not lying to them about the exercise, but you need a little creative narrative interpretation in order for, you're applying the same skills to Clark's point, you're applying what you actually would, but 
I can't go out and get an actual project, write an actual RFP and do the work. That's just not realistic. So I think there's an element of maybe not lying, but um, approximation to the truth, but not 100% true. So let me give you some of the context for the question. Okay. So first of all, I was sharing with Clark a story from when my kid was was five years old, five or six. So I get called into the principal's office uh, because uh, my daughter explained to everyone that Santa Claus was an impossibility. There could be no Santa Claus. Um, physics would not allow it. There's You would need to go the speed of light to be able to go to every kid's home and so forth let alone fit through a chimney. Um, and so I get called in for teaching my kid the science behind Santa Claus and that he's not real. And uh, so I, I asked them, well, did you expect me to lie? And they basically just short of saying, yes, you're supposed to lie to your children. So this really bugged me because, you know, we tell our kids you're never supposed to lie, but of course we lie. We lie to our kids all the time. Hey, daddy, what do you think of the drawing I just made you? It's beautiful, right? And we lie to our students. Um, I think, you know, sometimes, right? When when we know they did horrible work, but we don't want to crush them. So we fudge it a little, to your point, poetic license. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes we lie uh, in, in terms of just giving them one piece of constructive feedback rather than 20 things. Um, so we withhold information um, and so forth. Or we lie to clients, you know, about capabilities or the fact that they've set up things in a horrible way and we don't want to get them mad at us. And so what are the, the times in which we uh, tell white lies? And there's a lot of research behind all of this. Um, uh, Seth Stevens Davidovich, whose name I can't pronounce, uh, has a wonderful book called Everybody Lies. And, um, and in it talks about all the data, big data analytics that show and demonstrate that people are lying all the time. And, um, and yeah, then, but doesn't data lie? <laughs> well, he, well, he talks about that, right? Around how you interpret the data, and and right. and the whole final chapter is how careful you have to be, because big data can actually lead to coincidences and not actual correlations, mm -hmm. and and it gets into the statistics behind all of that as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, what what is that book? Great. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, right, right. I, uh, I think so. I, that's I think, the context. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting context. Yeah, I think all the time, like, capable. Hey, can you guys do this? Yeah, we could do this. And then you're like, oh my gosh, how do we do this? But, yeah, right. But it, I, I, but if you're confident in figuring it out, I guess it's not a lie. Or if you think it's a lie, I don't, I, there probably has to be uh, levels or degrees of lies, um, probably to to do that. But yeah, the the interesting thing about. Um, yeah, and students. Interesting about students is is, and I, and I think mentees are the same way. Is sometimes it's as bit of a art as it is a science in terms of yeah. this student. I need to be okay. Here's your 500 mistakes because you can handle it and you'll move on. 
this student, if I point them out, you'll be crushed and you'll never move forward. So it's a little bit of knowing your students. And, and that's one of the things I think that online learning, you know, self-paced or even Zoom-based lacks a little bit it, it is that, that physical, you know, I call it a sixth sense or whatever, but you can kind of, sometimes if you're in a classroom, you can tell who's getting it and who's not getting it, who's um, with you and who's not with you. Who's and, naughty or nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think that's all, um, all part of it, but yeah, there's definitely lying that goes on. And, and I think lying is, you know, it's, it's, um, it's part of the human condition, I think. Well, and, and what about stories, right? So, and I don't mean fictional stories where yeah. like Clark, Clark talks about fiction isn't lying. And, mm -hmm. and I totally agree with that. But what about stories about you? in your background but if you tell that story you come off like a hero which makes you arrogant so you change who it is at the right the, yeah right? it's not you anymore it's someone else so you don't come off like an arrogant jerk mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right and uh yeah or you give a third party example when it's a yeah. yeah 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 completely. you know these little white lies that just push this the narrative toward the objective but I think you brought up something important, Carl, in talking about the audience, what's right for them. And another element that brought up in, in the debate is what is your intent? Are you mm -hmm. trying to deceive them to get to something that you want them to do that they isn't necessarily the best for them? Or are you trying to help them in a way that you are trying to do things and you're deliberately doing it to accelerate their opportunity to excel? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Although, what is that phrase? The road to hell's paved with good intentions. <laughs> well, yeah. you have to know yourself and your audience, and and a bit about the context to to make that judgment. I think I've also think I've heard nobody thinks they're the villain. Right. Yeah. You're right. How many yeah. despots thought they were the bad guy? Mm -hmm. right. Well, that was like when you got to fiction. I I was reading something that um, the same kind of thing that said the the person in the horror movie doesn't know they're in a horror movie. And so of course they're going to go check the basement. Of course they're going to, because they don't know. Like, and to me, that was like a moment of revelation. Like, Oh, okay. That's, that's really interesting. So you might not know what narrative you're in, in the people that you're working with or teaching or instructing or designing instruction for. And to, to think that, that you don't know how you're perceived is very interesting and so i think if we get back to, to to lies i think we all have a certain professional persona that we put on that's not necessarily us and so we may be yeah as clark said lying to ourselves or lying to people uh students or or clients like what what we really are but if we're trying to achieve, I, I don't know, that's a really good question. You know, well, like, is Batman, is Batman a good guy or a bad guy? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, if, if there was a yeah. real life Batman in our world, uh, we would a think he's psychotic and B we would throw him in jail so fast. Yeah. Breaking yeah. bones. Right. But I, I think you are like me. We love Batman. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we both have him on our wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right? I mean, he is, he is, I think he was originally meant to be 
or at one point, I mean, the Dark Knight, he's he's definitely morally ambiguous, but um, it depends on the perspective and the intent. But only after 1970 with Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Yeah, true. Yeah, he yeah. was. Yeah. Before that, he was happy-go-lucky. He was happy-go-lucky, even though he was an orphan. Yeah, it's just an interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, now I think... we have the title for our podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it, I think it's really challenging because we we talk in absolutes, right? We say it's it's unethical or it's inappropriate to lie, but it's more nuanced than that. We don't lie about finances. We don't lie about uh, the fiduciary responsibilities we have. We don't lie about taxes. We don't lie about that kind of stuff but we lie all the time otherwise and you know i think there's there's a context that has to be considered and uh you know but i think that that also leads to more uh deeper conversations about the nuance of everything we do mm-hmm. that you know we we can't think of learning as just a black and white endeavor it's messy absolutely. yeah absolutely it is is very messy well um one of my students the other day pointed out something like, Dr. Kopp, you always say such and such is not a panacea or such and such doesn't solve all the problems. And, you know, trying to convey that nuance, especially to new learners um, in a field uh, or in an organization, they don't want it to be nuanced, right? They want to know, tell me this, 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 and this, and I'll do it. And unfortunately, so many situations are so much more nuanced than what we want to accept. So you make me think, uh, thinking back to um, apprenticeships and how people didn't be given the whole task at first. They'd be given, they'd be part of the community and watch the experts doing the nuanced stuff. And then they'd be given a small task to take on. And I liked uh, John Seeley Brown, Alan Collins, and Anne Holm are uh, in cognitive apprenticeship model that takes that to learning of you know cognitive skills, reading, writing, arithmetic, as they talked about. That uh, how do we develop people in a way that they can gradually acquire the nuances without doing damage by right. not doing it, <laughs> you know, by be given too much too fast. And yet, I think we err on that side perhaps are, are you guys familiar with scott page I, I think he's from michigan but he's a he's a I, I don't even know what he's a professor of but he he wrote a bunch of books on modeling and uh my favorite is called the model thinker and uh he talks about how you need more than one model to think through an issue that a single model never answers all the questions you need multiple models to be able to to be able to process through uh, all the different variations, and and um, and I think that's it, Clark. I think we need to think about having multiple perspectives, multiple models to conceive of issues in learning, mm-hmm. and can't just rely on a singular approach or a singular uh, way to address the the problems. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I think I think so much 
I think part of it is in school, you get single, like, okay, here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. Here's how you think about this. And we don't have the, the, the cross thinking or the thinking in different ways that do that. You know, I always think, I always thought it was so funny in grad school, we, you know, study behaviorism, cognitivism, you know, constructivism, connectivism. And I always thought, well, for learning different kinds of things, some things behaviorism is pretty good. Like not to put my hand on the stove. That's pretty much stimulus response. I don't might need to think about it. Although I prefer someone else put their hand on the stove and then I learn. Yes, but uh, no. <laughs> people don't learn that way. They're like, oh, it's not that hot. Ah, that's hot. Um, but, uh, you know, and then you think about like in some areas I needed to build my own. I, I need to build my own knowledge. So I, I think just ed strict adherence to one model is not um, is not effective. But you, you've got to you've got to take the time. You know, I think it goes back to I think it was Clark's point about the time. Like I read something a while ago that said one of the advantages companies used to have is people used to have time to think about their job and what they were doing and what the clients were doing. And now that doesn't exist and opportunities are missed. Um, people are burned out and all that kind of stuff just because there's not this, there's an artificial um, sense of urgency that doesn't have to be there, but people seem to believe that that does have to be there. So I think that's part of the problem, especially in learning. Like everybody wants to shazam, um, learning into somebody's head. Like, well, just teach them how to be a leader and, you know, an online e-learning module on how to be a leader. I'm like, you're, you gotta be kidding me. Like, and the other thing that I think is so interesting is if you ask somebody, okay, well, that's what you're asking for. Would that make you a leader? Well, no, no, no. Like I'm a natural leader. I don't really need instruction, but these people that would help them. Like, are you kidding me? Like, where's the self-reflection? Um, that I think is missing as well. Just but I have the position. I don't me. need reflection. <laughs> right. I just want the injection that teaches me how to fly helicopters, right? Right. Yeah. I, I definitely <laughs> like that. Hey, on that note, uh, so we resolve that it's more nuanced than yes or no. Correct? Well, it's a nuanced yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's time to transition into the best and the worst. So each time we, we have a show, we always end our episode with a best and a worst from the previous week in learning and development. And if you'd like, Carl, would you like me to go first to demonstrate? Sure, that'd be great. All right. So last week I was in France. I was teaching uh, my class on uh, collective performance and change. And I... Um, uh, did a day, one of the days I focused on HR strategy and I gave a case for an organization. And I had one, only one person in the class uh, is an HR professional and she pushed back on the activity and she said, this is more nuanced. It's there's our nuance again, and this is more complex. The case you're giving is overly simplistic and here's why. And um, and her pushback was initially irritating. And as I thought about it, she was right. And so I, I asked her to provide the questions she would like more of. 
And we dumped the whole activity and transitioned to letting her facilitate the conversation to what she felt needed to happen. And she did a brilliant job. And um, she ended up identifying holes that she didn't think of either in partnership with the class. And they turned the case into something I didn't expect. And um, I just applaud her thinking. She was one of the few HR people that really had a depth of thought and uh, and she could have taught the class. And that, that just made me happy to watch her in action uh, and see that. The worst was uh, in a workshop that Tiagi and I ran. Uh, uh, and uh, one of the students who sits with Clark and me in different programs brought up that nasty learning styles conundrum again and uh, wanted to know how we adjust an activity to accommodate the learning styles of the participants in the workshop. And I just wanted to ram my head through the wall. Um, so, which I know is intolerant of me, but it's been a rough year. So that was the best and the worst for me. Uh, Clark, do you want to go next? Sure. And it plays off nicely because the worst I saw last week was another myth. And somebody had posted on LinkedIn about how to design learning for each of the different generations. And I just wanted, uh, I did respond. I couldn't help myself in my first round, sigh. I've read, <laughs> um, this is so continually robust that people wanted to create these buckets and assign people to it based upon when they were born, which has nothing to do with their behavior, which is what you should be <laughs> making determinations on. So it was very frustrating. Um, but the, the best, I, I wish I had something more concrete, but I was I feel like there's increasing evidence that people are beginning to compete to be able to talk about learning science influence good design. And that's a pleasure. And it just uh, Christy Tucker had her um, latest she, weekly newsletter and she was talking about how she what she used an example in a workshop and she used the Lifesaver, um, which is this wonderful uh, app that has beautifully filmed branching video, really compelling scenarios. But to me, the really cool thing is then when it comes time to do CPR, it's on your iPad and you pump your iPad up and down at the rate you need to do for CPR. And it tells you if you're doing it too fast or slow. So it's combining immersive experience with feedback that helps fine tune your visceral muscles. And I just love to see um, other people pointing to that great example of what good design can be. Great. Cool. Yes. How about so, you, Carl? So my worst actually goes back to um, the learning styles. It seems that AI is enamored with learning styles. So I put in several things and they can't, oh, this matches this learning style or this <laughs> learning style. So, uh, AI and learning styles is a mess and, you know, cause it gets everything from the internet. And so the internet's all a gaga on learning styles. So I think that's, uh, that, that's the worst I've seen. Automating bad science is, is not good. It's just now faster and more efficient. <laughs> the best is, um, I'm teaching an AI course over this winter break and, um, I have a number of students, uh, who helped me develop assets for the course. And this one student, she developed a really engaging 
interesting kind of drill down model of the different elements of AI and how they all work together. And so it was a delight to see her um, instruction in the program applied to a practical learning asset that she created. So that, that was the best. Wonderful, wonderful. Carl, I really appreciate you coming and joining us. Uh, it's always great to talk with you, whether it's official on a podcast or in a workshop or just hanging out. And, yeah, thanks. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking to you guys. Yeah. It's been, it's and uh, we got to get you on one of the uh, debates or or you ought to know. Oh, yeah. uh, Clark has two new programs coming out on, on LDA uh, series, and I'm sure we can pull you in as one of the guests for, for those. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. So that would be great. Um, so thank you, Carl. Thank you, Clark. Coming up next month, we have the ubiquitous Paul Kirshner on. And so Paul will be joining us for our next episode. And don't forget Marcus uh, Bernhardt's AI Insights every two weeks after us. So it's us two weeks later, Marcus, and then us again uh, in, in your feed. So tune in, same channel, same bat channel. I got to do the joke, right? Same bat channel, same bat station. So no, there you go. Bad, same bad time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Carl. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Yeah.